Cuba, the Indian population was decimated. A Spanish priest in the New World, Bartolomé de las Casas, described the fate of the natives in his book entitled The Devastation of the Indies, published in 1552. He wrote first of the island of Hispaniola, currently the Dominican Republic and the Republic of Haiti. Yet into this sheepfold came some Spaniards who immediately behaved like ravening wild beasts, wolves, tigers, or lions that had been starved for many days. And Spaniards have behaved in no other way during the past 40 years, down to the present time, for they are still acting like ravening beasts, killing, terrorizing, afflicting, torturing, and destroying the native peoples. Doing all this was the strangest and most varied new methods of cruelty, never seen or heard of before, and to such a degree that this island of Hispaniola, once so populous, having a population that I estimated to be more than three millions, has now a population of barely 200 persons. The island of Cuba is nearly as long as the distance between Valladolid and Rome. It is now almost completely depopulated. Describing the native response, Las Casas continued, Those lands are so rich and felicitous, the native peoples so meek and patient, so easy to subject, that our Spaniards have no more consideration for them than beasts. And I say this from my own knowledge of the acts I witnessed. In the beginning, the Indians regarded the Spaniards as angels from heaven. Only after the Spaniards had used violence against them, killing, robbing, torturing, did the Indians ever rise up against them. Las Casas' arguments were part of a larger debate raging in Europe. The debate centered around a discussion of natural law, that is, the idea that all men, by their very nature, possess certain inalienable rights. By pointing out that native violence had been retaliatory, Las Casas was countering the popular doctrine that since the Indians had been defeated in a just war, they could be rightfully enslaved. He argued that the Indians were not beasts, but men who had met force with force. As such, they retained some rights. Las Casas championed the rights of Indians so vigorously that he became known as the Apostle of the Indies. Unfortunately, Las Casas saw nothing equally wrong with the long-established institution of Negro slavery, also called African slavery. Indeed, he advocated that African slaves be imported to relieve the suffering of the enslaved Indians. Thus, in the early 16th century, African slavery became one of the foundations of Spain's New World Empire. Slavery was to play a long and deleterious role in the history of Cuba, but in the 16th century, African slavery seemed desirable for two reasons. First, new immigrants from peninsular Spain, called peninsulares, began arriving in the New World in search of prestige and wealth. Slave labor was deemed essential to both. Secondly, enslaved Indians died at a horrifying rate. Overworked, hungry, and demoralized, many of the Indians simply willed themselves to die. This was not a desirable quality in a slave. Thus, the more sturdy Africans were imported. 
For Spain, the New World colonies brought two immense benefits. First, they were a source of cheap raw materials. Secondly, they were a monopoly market in which to sell Spanish goods. With the bureaucratic style of Spanish government, the New World soon became top-heavy with officials and trade regulations. This economic arrangement, known as mercantilism, became entrenched in Cuba. In the 1540s, Cuba was incorporated into the Viceroyalty of New Spain. The Casa de Contratación, or Board of Trade, drafted and enforced the harsh trade regulations and the heavy taxes that governed the island. The Scottish economist Adam Smith later listed the ill effects of Spanish mercantilism upon the New World in his book The Wealth of Nations. The degradation of the value of gold and silver below what it is in most other countries. The exclusion from foreign markets by improper taxes upon exportation and the narrowing of the home market by still more improper taxes upon the transportation of goods from one part of the country to another. But above all, that irregular and partial administration of justice, which often protects the rich and powerful debtor from the pursuit of his injured creditor, and which makes the industrious part of the nation afraid to prepare goods for the consumption of those haughty and great men to whom they dare not refuse to sell upon credit, and from whom they are altogether uncertain of repayment. Despite British critics such as Smith, the Spanish call the 16th century an age of heroic conquest and discovery. Hernán Cortés and his conquistadores set out from Cuba to topple the Aztec Empire. Spanish explorers combed the jungles of South America for gold and silver. Priests arrived to save the souls of millions of natives. By 1569, the church bureaucracy was functioning as another arm of state policy. Soon the Inquisition, or Holy Office, arrived in the New World to root out heretics and to confiscate their estates. But Cuba, unlike Mexico, was not especially blessed with gold and silver. Thus, in the general rush to seize wealth, Cuba became something of a backwater. Only the island's strategic importance, lying at the intersection of the Atlantic Ocean, the Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf of Mexico, saves Cuban society from deteriorating through neglect. When English, Dutch, and French pirates began to raid the wealth-laden ships bound for Spain, the Spanish organized a military convoy system called the Flota. The Cuban port of Havana became a key stop en route to Spain, and the Spanish authorities poured money and men into fortifying this port. Havana was in the Occidente, or western province of Cuba, and Havana's importance made the whole province more prominent. The coastal plains of Occidente proved ideal for large-scale sugar plantations, which were worked by black slaves. Indeed, the sugar planters had a reputation for working their slaves to death at amazing rates. Inland in Occidente, in valleys and along rivers, an entirely different way of life developed based on the small-scale cultivation of tobacco. This form of farming benefited little, if at all, from the use of slaves. The 20th century Cuban sociologist Fernando Ortiz discussed the consequences of these two ways of life in his classic work entitled Cuban Counterpoint, Tobacco and Sugar. 
Ortiz offered an historical analysis of how these two crops dominated Cuban life. Tobacco was a native product, which was later cultivated by blacks for extra money. The authorities saw this uncontrolled production as a threat to the existing economic and racial order. Accordingly, laws were passed restricting the cultivation of tobacco to whites. Ortiz described how tobacco required less slave labor than sugar did. In the production of tobacco, intelligence is the prime factor. We have already observed that tobacco is liberal, not to say revolutionary. In the production of sugar, it is a question of power. Sugar is conservative, if not reactionary. Sugar production required gangs of laborers who worked under conditions that free men would have rejected. Ortiz pointed out, When there were no Negroes, slaves of other races were to be found on the plantations. Berbers, Moors, mulattoes. The alliance was not between the cane field and the Negro, but between the cane field and the slave. Sugar spelled slavery, tobacco, liberty. If slavery was a source of great profit for the sugar planters, it was also a source of great anxiety. The specter of a slave revolt haunted the dreams of the planters. Moreover, there were now a large number of free people of mixed race, gente de color, and this was viewed as a social danger. This mixture of races offended the Spaniards' ingrained belief in limpieza de sangre, the purity of blood. But more ominously, it served as a reminder to slaves that their station in life was not inevitable. Sugar had another social drawback. It required huge tracts of land for cultivation.